0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom slash socks. Feeling bad doesn't mean that something's wrong. Just like exercise, right? You know, what Marines say, pain is weakness leaving the body. This is something my coach tells me, like on a regular basis, as I start to bitch and moan when he (laughs) wants me to add 10 pounds to something. And I'm like complaining about it. He reminds me of this and it's really true in life as well. So whenever you're doing something really expensive, really hard and metabolically expensive, it is not going to feel good necessarily. And that can mean exercise. It can mean learning something new whether you're talking to somebody who's on the opposite side of a political spectrum from you or whether it's learning the piano or whether it's learning a new language. You know, there are always gonna be times when things don't feel good, but sometimes something not feeling good means that you're doing something really hard, but that it could be a really good investment for your future.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. There's a lot of science about how the brain works and what really controls our feelings and emotional responses to situations, but most of what we have been told about how this works in the past is wrong, and my guest today is someone that is going to share some unpopular truths on how your emotions are made and how your brain actually works to give you hope that you are not at the mercy of your emotions, which fittingly is the name of her TED Talk. And So my guest today is Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. She stands among the top 1% most cited scientists globally for her revolutionary research in neuroscience and psychology. Dr. Barrett is a university distinguished professor at Northeastern University, and she is also the chief science officer for the Center of Law, Brain and Behavior at Harvard University. She was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience in 2019. She has published over 240 peer reviewed articles and has a TED talk on emotions that has been viewed over 6 million times. She is the best selling author of How Emotions Are Made, and her latest book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is just as powerful. Some of the topics we cover today include why everything we have been taught previously on emotions and the brain is wrong how the way we manage our body is similar to a bank account, how our brain affects us from a neurological, how our words affect our brain from a neurological perspective, why our past experiences and behaviors impact how we respond to external forces and constructing emotions and the real function of the human brain, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, Doug. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. I was thinking about like where I really wanted to start this interview because I've obviously I've heard you in your TED Talks. I heard you on Lex Fridman's podcast, Tom Bilyeu's show, and read your books. And I was like, where do I want to start? But I think one of the fascinating things to me, at least on paper, is that if I'm correct, you were the first person... I believe in your family or extended family to attend college and pay for college. And then now you are in the top 1% of the most cited scientists in the world. You have some revolutionary research on emotions in the brain, won all kinds of awards. And I just wanted to ask, how did you kind of go? What was the process like from you going from that kid who I'm sure came from humble beginnings to becoming as accomplished as you are today in the realm of neuroscience and emotion?
0: I really appreciate that question. It's funny because I don't walk around thinking of myself as somebody who's accomplished. I walk around thinking about all the things I haven't done yet or need to do or have agreed to do that I haven't done. You know, know, I used to think that I was an oppositional kid in the sense that I didn't like being told what to do, which may be true if you ask my mother, but I think in retrospect, The kinds of answers I got when I asked, so if somebody told me to do something, my usual response to that would be to ask why. Right. I wasn't trying to be a mouthy kid. I was trying to actually understand why. And the answer I usually got was because I said so. And that's never satisfied me, actually. And I think that It's not so much that I had ever any confidence in my own way of doing things or seeing things. It's just that I never was satisfied with answers by authority because I said so. I'm still not satisfied with that, right? So to me, it's wonderful to realize that Darwin wrote this or that or Einstein wrote this or that. But the mere fact that it was written by Darwin doesn't make it true or Einstein or anybody. And that's something I try to impart also to my own students, right? Is that I know that they're ready to fly, leave the nest when they can give me a good run for my money, right? Like really debate me and often win actually. So yeah. And I think probably somewhere in high school, I realized that my only way out of a difficult situation was going to be education. Yeah.
1: It's fascinating. And I think there's a few things that are really admirable in your story, not just the fact that you came from humble beginnings to where you are now. Another is that you you went this traditional therapist route, it seemed like, where you went through college to and you went the psychology route and then you you dive into this field of emotions and you're trying to figure it out and understand it. And you're like, wait, this doesn't make sense. You're asking a lot of questions and being that person that you seem like to rebel against authority and challenge the status quo, you decide to go the neuroscience route and actually do the research yourself and few decades later, you've you've now revolutionized the way that us as human beings can see emotions and are able to then use our own emotions to our advantage instead of thinking of them as something that just are there and we're we're reacting to that. So talk a bit about, in layman's terms, pretty much what the old notion says about how emotions are made in our brain, in our body, and kind of what you've learned through your research that I think people would appreciate.
0: Sure. I'm really happy to do that. But the first thing I just want to say as a start is that there's a discussion in science about the importance of diversity in science, people with diverse backgrounds, diverse cultural views and so on. And sometimes that conversation gets mistaken to be a discussion of fairness. It's not about fairness. It's about learning to ask different questions or see things in a different way. So I came to the field of emotion and later to the field of neuroscience, not having been trained in those fields. So I wasn't, I was going to say indoctrinated. That's probably the wrong, probably the right. wrong word, but I wasn't socialized into the right set of questions. Nobody said to me, oh, well, you should ask these questions are okay, but like these questions you shouldn't really be asking. I didn't know that. I didn't have that background. So I just asked every question that occurred mm-hmm. to me. And when I was in graduate school, I was studying something else, actually. I was studying self-esteem and I had to measure emotion. And I noticed that the measures that I was using, asking people how they feel, were not performing particularly well. They just, if you ask someone, are you feeling depressed? They would, if they said yes, they would also tell you that they were angry and anxious and afraid. And if they said no, uh, that they were feeling happy, then they were also feeling comfortable and feeling proud and, and feeling calm. And I just thought, well, that can't be right. People must be unaware somehow of the differences between emotions because everybody knows that, and I'm putting that in scare quotes now, but everybody knows that your body is supposed to take on one pattern of activity. So your your heart is supposed to race and your blood pressure is supposed to go up in anger and but in fear, your, your heart is supposed to race and you're supposed to want to run away. And in sadness, your heart is supposed to slow and your breathing is supposed to deepen and you're supposed to cry. So the idea is that there's a, the way that textbooks are written and the way that people talk to each other, it's like there's one fingerprint of physical changes that are is anger. Everybody scowls when they're angry, everybody frowns when they're sad and so on. That was the hypothesis. And I thought, oh, this is really convenient because if that's true and we just can read emotions in people by measuring what their face is doing or what their body's doing, then I don't even have to ask people. And maybe I can measure how they actually feel, like what emotional state they're actually in. And I can compare that to what they say. And then I can figure out who's aware of their emotions and who isn't. And that was the way that I was thinking about it based on everything that I had learned. But when I jumped into the literature and I started reading actual experiments, I discovered that there is really not good evidence that everybody makes one facial expression when they're angry. So most people in Western cultures will scowl about 30% of the time when they're angry, which means 70% of the time when they're angry, they're not scowling, they're doing something else with their face. Think about all the time, Doug, all the times you're angry. What do you do with your face? I mean, sometimes you probably scowl, but probably a lot of the times you don't.
1: I mean, sometimes I smile if I think about it because I'm like, I'm going to try and change my state. I'm going to shake it off. I'm going to suppress the emotion. I'm going to move on. And I'm sure that's not helpful either. I mean, but we can get into that. But yeah, you're right. And I don't want to interrupt you. But one thing that comes to mind that I wanted to uh, reflect on from your book is one of the examples you gave was talking about the person who was having the anxiety attack, I believe, walked into the emergency room, thought they were having a heart attack. And the people, because maybe it was based on her past experiences, maybe she had some trauma or had something where she grew up that influenced her thoughts that it, or that her reaction to the feeling that it was a heart attack, when in reality, it was an anxiety attack. And the people in the hospital, because of their expertise and their predictions based on their knowledge, were able to see that it was, in fact, an anxiety attack and not a heart attack. And I had that same thing happen to me. I was doing and selling drugs a good bit of my younger years and I didn't take care of myself health wise. So when my heart started racing, my face went numb and I was having all these pains. My first thought because of my predictions based on the way I was living was I'm dying heart attack. I walk into the emergency room, I'm screaming, help, 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 I'm dying. Similar kind of reaction. People were like, sir, sit down. You're just high on drugs or you're having a panic attack, whatever it was. right? And and just reading that in your book, I was like, it makes so much sense. Like logically when you can sit back and you see what you say, it's like, wow, that totally makes sense. But I think in society, because we have a lot of these old sayings and old literature, like you said, that you're saying you're not like saying wasn't quote unquote fair, but you're like, all right, let's just try a different approach. So I just wanted to say it all makes sense to me. And I'm sure it's going to make sense to a lot of the listeners as well.
0: Well, I have to tell you though, it works the other way too. So I have a friend, his name is Jim Cohn, and he is also a neuroscientist. And he told me the story. He actually has a podcast too called The Circle of Willis. And for his Halloween version, or I guess episode, not this past year, but the year before, he tells a story about how he was having a lot of chest pain and I'm feeling really, really worked up and and really aroused, not sexually aroused, but like jittery, like on edge. And went to his doctor, and his doctor said, Oh, you're just having it's just anxiety. And but the symptoms were getting worse and worse, and he was feeling more and more uncomfortable. And he went to lie down and try to calm himself down, breathe deeply, and he says he remembered he could hear my. My voice in his head because we had had a conversation about my first book, how emotions are made. Right, and in that book, I relayed a story about the fact that women often, when they go to the emergency room, they're told that they're having an anxiety attack, but really they're having a heart attack, and they go home and then they die. And so he drags his ass out of bed, drags himself to the emergency room. He still is really, really having a lot of symptoms. They check him out. He checks out fine. He has no heart symptoms at all. He's fine, and they basically say to him, "You're you're having an anxiety attack," and he's completely embarrassed. But because he's so uncomfortable, he says, "I really want to see I really want to see the cardiologist. I really want to see the cardiologist." That's the point at which, if he were a woman, they would send him home. Mm. But he stayed. The cardiologist walks into the room, and he has a massive coronary right there. It's called a widowmaker. Mm.
1: Wow. So you And haven't... he would
0: have died. He would have died actually if he hadn't been right in. So the point is that you have the kind of brain that really doesn't have a good sense of what is going on inside your own body. Your brain has to guess. All your brain receives are the sensations that are coming from your body, but it doesn't know what's causing them. So when you have an ache in your chest, your brain is trying to figure out what caused that ache. Just like when you hear a bang, that could be a door slamming, it could be a car backfiring, it could be, you know, thunder, it could be a gunshot, you don't know, your your brain is basically guessing what what just caused that noise, based on the last time I was in this kind of situation, what caused it then. And your brain is also doing the same thing with your body. And it's knitting those guesses together to create your experience. That's really how your brain is making emotions. You don't have circuits for anger and sadness and fear embedded in some ancient part of your brain. That's just a myth. That's not really how your brain works.
1: So from my understanding from your other interviews you've done in your books, and again, feel free to correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it just seems that when we go through life in situations and in moments, we get these things called feelings or moods or affects, I guess in the more psychological scientific term, and then based on our childhood, our previous experiences and our memories, our body's first objective is to act, right? And we taught, were, we're taught, all right, I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, but we want to move towards whatever that is. And then we, we guess in our brain what's going on based on all of that and create our own emotional response to Am I correct?
0: Yeah, I think you're getting it pretty well. So what I would say is the first piece to understand is that your brain evolved, brains evolved to control bodies. That's why they evolved. They didn't evolve to be rational or anything like that. Of course, you don't experience yourself that way. But when you think, when you see things, when you hear things, when you feel something, all of that is really in your brain's, is in the service of your brain's most important task, which is to regulate the systems of your body. And that's what it's doing all the time. From morning until night, from birth till death. Okay. And when your brain is controlling your heart and controlling your lungs and like all the other gunk and junk that's going on inside your body, your body is sending sense data back to your brain. So right now you and I are sitting having a chat, but inside each of us and actually inside each listener who's listening to this conversation is a whole drama going on that you are largely unaware of, thank goodness, because if you were aware of it, you would never pay attention to anything outside your own skin ever again. And if you don't believe me, go to a, one of those flotation tanks, like those sensory deprivation tanks where you float in salt water because they block out, they make it dark and they put in earplugs and you take off all your clothes and you get into this pool, which is at the same temperature as your body, as your skin. And basically they've uh, made it so there's no external sensations coming from the world at all. And then all of a sudden, you just are exposed to this real symphony of stuff going on inside, which normally is just drowned out largely, wow. largely right now. It's happening right now. You just can't sense it. And so, evolution has kind of given us a workaround to f- figure out like when everything is copacetic or like, every, is everything okay inside my body or are, are things kind of out of balance? And that's what you called affect or mood or feeling. And these simple feelings, do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable? Do you feel good or bad? Do you feel really worked up or really calm? These feelings are always with us all the time. They sometimes when they're really intense, they're like right in the foreground of what we're experiencing. Sometimes they're in the background of what we experience. Like when someone cuts you off on the highway, that is when we used to drive before COVID. Yeah. When someone cuts me off on the highway, my immediate reaction is, what an asshole. Right. So there, that's affect, that's feeling, but I'm embedding that feeling in the perception of that guy as an asshole, as opposed Mm to my reaction to that guy. So affect is always there. What we do with it kind of changes, but it's always there. Affect is not emotion, right? Affect doesn't tell you what is wrong. It just tells you something is wrong. It doesn't tell you what is okay. It just tells you something's okay. And then you have to figure out, what do I need to do now? And so what your brain is always doing is it's guessing. It's the way that we describe it is your brain is trapped in a box called your skull. It's receiving information from your body and from the world, right? Like a tug in your chest or a bang in the air. And your brain, these are the effects, the causes, the outcomes of something that just happened, but your brain has to guess at what the causes are. And so it's using your past experience that come from your lived experience of a whole lifetime and also the things that you've watched on TV and that you've read and that you've heard from other people. And all of this is available in your brain to try and make sense of what that tug means or what that bang means. And your brain is always making a guess. And the guess that it makes is action first and experience second, which I know sounds nuts, but that actually is the way it's working. So when your brain makes a guess about what that bang is or what that tug is, that guess is first a preparation to act. And then it's, well, the last time I prepared myself to act this way, what did I see? What did I hear? What did I feel? That's sort of how it works.
1: From what I understand, it seems that our childhood and past experiences and our own past behaviors plays a huge role in our ability for our brain to guess how to respond to these affects, these moods, uh, these feelings, whether it's going to be in a negative way or a positive way. And I guess one example is I think if your homeostasis is you grew up in a toxic home, where you had people fighting all the time and then your relationships were toxic. Even if you get into some sort of healthy relationship, your default is going to be the sense that something's that you're scared of something and some you're angry. If you don't kind of rewire your brain and, and do the work to move forward and kind of rewire those patterns. And there's a quote that I heard you say, I think it was on Lex's interview. It was phenomenal, but it said something along the lines of if you can't change the past you can change the, the present, which becomes your past. So talk about how somebody can really go from you know, maybe when they get these affects based on their patterning and their the way they grew up, they're responding, their, their brain is guessing fear, anger, rage, whatever it is. How can they start to, re- to maybe train their brain over, over time? Because I know it's not easy. It's extremely hard at first to respond more efficiently and positively.
0: I would say it's one of the most difficult things to do. And you can't actually do it unless you a little bit how it works. Mm. But even when you know how it works, it doesn't exactly make it easier. And I would say, I've been at this for 30 years. And I I still think it's hard sometimes. It's still really, really hard sometimes. And so I want to back up one step and talk about just start where you started. And then I'm going to answer your question. So I want to take one step back and say, you know, when a baby is born, that baby's brain is born under construction. The baby can't regulate its own body. Baby can't even burp by itself. Can't feed itself. Can't really can't do very much. Can't even control its limbs. Okay. I remember the day that I watched my daughter for the first time, try to swing at something deliberately. She missed it by like a mile, but she, I could see she was looking right at it and she was trying to get her arm to hit it, but she (laughs) completely missed it. Right. So you can't even move your limbs by yourself. So your caregivers are basically maintaining your nervous system for you. They're feeding you and they're keeping your temperature regulated and they're teaching you when to go to sleep and all of these things. So they're, the way I describe it is you, your brain is running a budget for your body. It's not budgeting money. It's budgeting glucose and salt and water and so on. And everything that you do, everything that you learn, every... Compliment you give, every insult you bear, every hug you share, all of these things are you can think of in terms of deposits and withdrawals from your budget, right? So when you exercise, that's a withdrawal, but it's an investment. You're spending because you expect to get some return on your investment, right? So a baby's brain can't run its own body budget. That's what its caregivers do. Its caregivers keep that body budget solvent. And in the process, the baby's brain is being wired to a particular world a world that is curated by the parents, by what the parents do, how often the parents talk to the baby, what they say to the baby and and so on and so forth. And that goes on through childhood and into adolescence. And it takes about 25 years until a brain is developed to its adult state in a human. And even then we're still making deposits and withdrawals metaphorically in each other's body budgets all the time, okay? So remember how I said, when your brain is receiving these sense data and it's asking itself, like it's trying to use past experience to make sense. Really what your brain is doing, it's figuratively asking itself, not what is this bang or what is this tug? It's "What what is this like? What is this similar to in my past experience? So because of how our brains work, they're very, very dependent on the past the past experiences that you have. The past is is used to cultivate, to make predictions about the future, which become your present. Right. And so what that means though, is if you make a big deposit, if you make a big withdrawal, I should say, as an investment to cultivate a new present, that present in a minute from now will be the past. Mm So in much the same way that exercise is an investment, it's a huge investment, a big metabolic outlay because you're you're hoping for a healthier brain down the road. Exactly in the same way if you make the time to expose yourself to new ideas, to cultivate new experiences for yourself, not necessarily in the heat of the moment, but really when you have the resources to do it and maybe just like before, I don't know what you do before you exercise. Before I exercise, I usually have a protein drink and I usually make sure I'm drinking enough water. Like I'm giving myself support. I'm supporting my body budget as I'm doing this really hard thing, which usually feels like shit, but I'm doing it anyways.
1: I, and- guess what, you know, I guess just like reflecting back to what you're saying for the audience to maybe just kind of understand very simply what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like we have this body budget and your brain's number one function is to control all of this and regardless, your body has to use energy. But what I'm hearing you say is things like exercise, I'm sure hanging around positive people and doing things of service and working on yourself are short-term withdrawals from your from your system, but they're more like investments exactly. that are going to pay off long-term. Whereas something like getting into an argument over politics or something that might be more meaningless or something that could be negative, I'm saying or scrolling exactly. through social exactly. media is more of like an expense in your budget where you're just, it's just negative energy that you're not gonna get back long-term, it's just gone, yeah, right? But,
0: but here's, yes, exactly. So so I think there are a lot of different things that you can practice that are, are like investments. You're, you're using right. energy, but it's an investment. And what you're doing is you're cultivating your past mm. to control who you will be in the future, basically. So right. changing your experience right now in the heat of the moment, is super hard yeah it's doable it's doable but it's sometimes but it's it's really really hard but what you can do is you can practice when you're not in the heat of the moment and then then if you practice like any skill if you practice it enough you you start to do it automatically so here's an example every day i practice a uh, five for five minutes i practice an experience of wonder or awe mm because it gives my nervous system a break. And even when I don't need it, like today, for example, I have a friend who lives in New Zealand and she sent me a little videotape of a beach, she's at the beach and she sent me a little videotape of the, the shore and the ocean because she knows I love the ocean and I haven't been able to go to an ocean since last March when, when, when the, the pandemic um, hit. And so I can take that and I can use that for five minutes, cultivate a, an experience of awe. But I can also cultivate an experience of awe by looking at a dandelion poking through a broken sidewalk and be in wonder at the majest, at the majesty of nature that will not be constrained by human activity, no matter what we do. We pave over it with concrete and still nature pokes its way through. You can practice gratitude, you can practice compassion. It may seem like a waste of time and energy to you except when you're feeling really stressed, really pressed, you can your brain can pull out those experiences and give your nervous system a break. Right. Or for here's another example. So you're arguing with someone about politics. It's easy to get infuriated about talking to somebody who doesn't agree with you. So you can spend five minutes a day trying to see things from that person's point of view, not for the purposes of arguing with them in your head and winning, but really try to see it from their, like really accept for a moment that they're not stupid. And from their point of view, what they believe makes sense. There's a Buddhist saying, anger is a form of ignorance. Mm. And what it means is that if you're furious with someone, it usually means you are not appreciating their perspective. In the end, as a practice, it doesn't matter whether you agree with them or not, or whether you get them to agree with you. The point is that you, have, you are building a flexible brain. You are training your brain to be flexible, to be able to see something from multiple points of view. And in the end, that will buy you resilience to stressful difficult circumstances.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things I know you talk about in your book and it was eye-opening to me, but it made total sense about the importance of taking that time to take your quote-unquote views out and have these conversations with people who have completely different views and just really try to have tr- like empathy and compassion for how they're feeling and believe that they actually feel that way. And that's okay. And it might not make them a bad person. In reality, like diversity, as you said, is great. I mean, I heard you, I think you were talking to, to Lex talking about how your, I think it was your husband has like seven different shirts and or whatever and people buy different clothes but when it comes to like politics and culture and all these other things that people get into arguments about we don't want diversity sometimes different opinions yeah,
0: yeah exactly humans love humans love variation we right. don't want to eat the same thing every day we don't want to wear the same thing every day the only place where we have trouble with with variation is with each other
1: yeah but one of the things that really blew me away as a trainer in your book was when you talked about, like you hear a lot in my field, if you're stressed, you can gain weight. If you're stressed, you might gain some fat in your uh, midsection. But when I read that you had came across these studies, and I don't remember the exact statistics, (sighs) but that when someone was stressed out, that when within two hours of them eating, it added like an additional hundred calories or so to whatever food they were eating. And if they were in some sort of stressful environment, and I don't remember the exact timing of this one, that when you ate a healthy fat. It got, got digested as French fries. And why it was fascinating to me was my, my parents got divorced when I was five and I grew up in a kind of an unsettling environment with going back and forth. I was always in a stressful state with my family life. And I started gaining weight at a young age. Now I probably ate a little bit of the junk food in excess than my friends, but I, I thought I was eating the the same foods my friends were eating, I mean, like I said, I might've been eating a little bit more, but I'm almost wondering if it wasn't quote unquote genetics, that it was just stress and my body wasn't properly digesting yeah. the food after reading that.
0: So I think it's really important that people understand that a couple of things. One is that what is stress? Stress is where your brain believes that there's some really big important thing that you have to do. And so it flushes your system with glucose. That's what cortisol is. Cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a hormone that gets glucose into your bloodstream fast because your brain's expecting that you have to do something. Right. So imagine that your brain, your brain believes that you have to lift 100 pounds. Every time you walk into a room with your parents who are arguing, it's like your brain believes something to the equivalent of you have to lift hundred pounds and you don't lift hundred pounds, right? So it prepares you for nothing. Well, eventually, well, each time that happens, you pay a little metabolic tax, not a big tax, but like a little one. But eventually those little taxes add up. It's just like if a drip, keeps dripping on a metal pipe, eventually it will bore a hole through that pipe, right? It doesn't happen the first time, doesn't happen the thousandth time, but eventually that pipe is gonna be destroyed. It's exactly the same kind of thing. You're paying a little bit of metabolic tax. What does that metabolic tax cost? About 104 calories. That's what we learned, right? That when you are stressed within a two hour period of eating, it's like just adding 104 calories to your meal which if you add that up over a year is is 11 pounds, 11 pounds, right? And similarly, if you um, are stressed within a day, it means that any of the good fats that you eat are metabolized as bad fats. So basically this all comes down to the efficiency of your metabolism. I'm not saying everything that's important is about your metabolism, but I think it's one It's one cause that's kind of overlooked because we don't attach our feelings. Our feelings actually are very tied to our metabolism, but we don't understand that in our everyday life. So you could be eating exactly the same thing as your friends who are less stressed and you will gain more weight because your body is metabolizing things slightly less efficiently and as this adds up over time, your body budget starts to run a deficit. And I don't have to tell you what that feels like. As your body starts to run a deficit, your body budget, you start to feel like crap all the time. Right. And there are various ways that you can use to make make yourself feel better. Some of which are, are not as helpful in the long run as others.
1: Right. And I I heard you say something, I think it was during your TED talk and you said something along the lines of some things are responsibility, not because we are to blame, but because we're the only one that can actually change it. And I think there's a lot of people that I think if they knew they had the power to do it, the self-confidence, I think they would. Most people know what to do. I think when people come to me as a trainer, they're like, what should I eat? Most people, I think internally already know that eating pizza and cookies every day isn't going to help them with their weight loss goals. The problem is doing it and building the self is building the self-confidence within them. And I think like you said, it just starts with just trying to change your habits. And then over time, you build up these new routines and these new patterns that your brain becomes adjusted to, right?
0: Yeah, I was a therapist in an earlier life. And I think and also I will say too, I mean, I climbed my way out of, difficult life circumstances. And so I'm not only saying this as a scientist and a therapist, I'm also saying it as somebody who's also lived. When bad things happen to you, you're victimized twice, really. The first time you're victimized because something bad happens to you. Right. Not your fault, right? But then you're left to clean up all the crap and only you can do it. Not because it's your fault or you're culpable, but because you really are the only one with the power to do it. And that feels unfair and it is unfair, but it's also life. Yeah. And, and luckily there are skills that you can learn to do it. And it's not easy, but it is effective if you stick with it over time. And you have to really realize that feeling bad doesn't mean that something's wrong. So just like exercise, right? I mean, you know, what Marines say, pain is weakness leaving the body. This is something my coach tells me like on a regular basis as I start to bitch and moan when he (laughs) wants me to add 10 pounds to something and I'm like complaining about it. He reminds me of this and it's really true in life as well. So whenever you're doing something really expensive, really hard and metabolically expensive, it is not going to feel good necessarily. And that can mean exercise. It can mean learning something new, whether you're talking to somebody who's on the opposite side of a political spectrum from you, or whether it's learning the piano, or whether it's learning a new language. You know, there are always going to be times when things don't feel good. But sometimes something not feeling good means that you're doing something really hard, but that it could be a really good investment for your future.
1: And I think one thing that I've heard you say that I totally agree with that it comes down to is you really have to choose your heart, right? Because, and you know, I've heard you say that it is somebody's responsibility and they need to take ownership of them changing. And if they don't want to, it doesn't make them a quote unquote, I heard you say snowflake or a bad person. We shouldn't shame those people, but they also need to know, and I would need to know if it was me, that my life is still going to be hard. My relationships are going to be challenging. I'm going to be paying more in healthcare costs. My job productivity might not be good. I'm going to have mental health issues. Like that's all hard stuff to go through. And then on the other side of that, the hard is getting into a workout routine. Maybe that I haven't done drinking more water, getting better sleep, practicing meditation, surrounding myself with better people. All that stuff is challenging too. And it's like, well, which one do you want? Do you want the one that's pretty much guaranteed for you to be miserable in life? Like it's guaranteed pretty much. Or do you want the one that it's not going to always be great. Like life isn't always great but you're going to learn a lot along the way. You're going to have a smile on your face. You're going to be more productive. You're going to have some wisdom.
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think in a little bit, a little bit, I would say in the United States, there's like a tyranny of happiness, like that they should be entertained and happy. And I really think that being satisfied and living a meaningful life is not the same as being carefree and happy in every moment. And of course we all want to feel, I think really what people want to feel is, comfortable meaning not in pain like they don't want to suffer and it is possible to have a life where you minimize the amount of suffering that you do but you have to do it by taking responsibility for yourself and for other people so we don't just manage our own body budgets we also figuratively speaking make deposits and withdrawals into other people's body budgets and i can describe for you how that works you- yeah, I want
1: you to go into detail because when I was reading that, I was like, just so important for people to hear because one of the things that I talk a lot about, even with my own content or even throughout the show, is the importance of surrounding yourself with, with good people and not just people that always quote unquote agree with you, but people that you can get along with and you can have positive conversations that are kind of getting somewhere. It doesn't have to be about positive things, but you leave and you're like, wow, like I learned something, I feel better, like that sort of thing. So yeah, please go into that.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I, I said this on Lex's show and I, I really stand by it. When my daughter went off to college, what we told her was, surround yourself with people who allow you to be your best self. Yeah. Figure out who you wanna be and then choose to people who allow you to be that person. That's really, really important. I think it's important to understand that the way that humans evolved we're a social species. And that means that we influence each other's nervous systems in really profound ways. So Doug, if you and I were in the same room and we were having this conversation, let's say over a cup of coffee, and we liked each other and we trusted each other, our heart rates would synchronize, our breathing would synchronize. We'd start mirroring each other's actions without any awareness that this was happening, it would happen. If we didn't trust each other, then it would, we wouldn't see this kind of fluid dance. We would, everything would be slightly more awkward and there would be no, no synchronizing going on. And we regulate each other's nervous systems in many ways that other animals do too, but we have an additional way and that's with words.
1: Yeah. I was hoping you get into that because that was something that was also it hit the nail. You hit the nail on the head with it in your book. And I know that the whole words thing has been thrown around a lot, either in with the famous book "The Four Agreements" by Don Miguel Ruiz or other current like talking the personal development space. But I wanted to honestly get your opinion on it from like a neurological state on what words can actually do because I've heard you talk about this.
0: I guess I would just say this: if you look in the brain, you look at the systems that are involved in understanding language and generating spoken language. They're exactly the same as the regions that are controlling your body. Mm. Exactly the same. Wow. And this is also true in other animals as well. It's not just true in humans. So in in birds, for example, songbirds, the parts of the brain that are important for the bird's ability to learn song and hear song and, and charm each other with songs are exactly the parts of the brain that are controlling that bird's body, lungs, heart, immune system, metabolism, and so on. So, this is why you can read something. You can read the Bible. You can read the Quran. You could read poetry from a thousand years ago. You can read words that come from thousands of years ago and they can soothe you or infuriate you. And whatever change in feeling you're having, that is accompanied by some change inside your body. I can text three little words to my uh, close friend of mine who lives, uh, you know, halfway around the world. She doesn't have to see my face or hear my voice. She can just see those words and I can change her metabolism, her breathing, her heart rate. We do this all the time in experiments with people in the lab, but we also do it with each other. And so what this means is that a kind word can do a lot for someone and an insult can also have an impact. And so we have this kind of situation where we, we have these socially dependent nervous systems where we're influencing each other's um, body budgets, and therefore the likelihood that we're influencing each other's well being in the moment in really profound ways. But we live in a country that has very strong individual beliefs about individual rights and freedoms. Right. And that's a conflict. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to curb people's ability to speak freely. It just means that we have to have a conversation about this and acknowledge the fact that we are more responsible for each other than we might know or like or want, right? So you and I could disagree with someone. You and I could disagree with each other even. But if we disagree with each other while still speaking respectfully and treating each other with a basic amount of human dignity, that's going to have a different effect than if we really tear into each other and treat each other like animals. Like the problem in right now isn't that people disagree, it's that there's this casual level of brutality in public conversations. It's not just a problem of civics, it's a public health problem. It's actually adding a tax to people's body budgets exactly at a time when people don't need it and it's not helpful. And the tricky bit here Doug, is that the cost doesn't show up immediately. Remember, right. it's only a little tax that you pay every single time. So over years, it's going to add up.
1: Yeah, so- I mean, and I think the the thing that for people to think about is you hear a lot about, especially in fitness, about stacking days and just being consistent and how it adds up to a big goal. If you eat well, and exercise, drink enough water and sleep good over the course of six months, and your goal is to lose weight. If you're on point with your calorie goal and everything, chances are you'll probably lose some weight. But I think it can have an adverse effect if you're going in a negative spiral where you're having these constant negative conversations with people where you're getting into these disagreements and it's not anything constructive where you're saying things to other people on social media. And I think the one thing that you talked about in the book a lot, or not a lot about, but one of the things that really hit home with me was the thing on anxiety and how to change your perception when you have anxious feelings. And I think words don't just have, at least in my opinion, I could be completely wrong, don't just have an effect on others. They have an effect on ourselves when we talk to ourselves. And if you are waking up in the morning and you get into this panic and you have it, I know you talk about in the book, like it's a test and you are like panicking, you're like, oh my God, I have anxiety. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. You're going to go down this rabbit hole and develop these emotions attached around fear and anxiety based on your brain guessing in response to these affects, yeah. right? Yes. But if, but if you change, it seems like the way you talk to yourself and say, I'm really excited about this test, I'm going to do great, I'm determined to pass, I'm going to do whatever I can. I think over time, I'm mean, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is repeated over a certain amount of times, your default won't be anxiety, your default will be, I'm excited and, de- and determined, am I right?
0: Absolutely. So there is research which shows that um, And well, the
1: same does the same go with depression? I was wondering, is the same if you get the feelings of the depression, is it the same or no?
0: So it is and it isn't. So what I want to say is I'm gonna flip around what I'm gonna say because I I want people to really understand what I'm saying. If you are clinically depressed, clinical depression is like a bankrupt body budget, really. Like the two most expensive things your brain can do is move your body and learn something new. And so what do you do when you're running a deficit in your actual bank account? You stop spending. So that's what your brain does too. And it means that you get fatigued and you don't want to move too much. And it also means that you stop learning and you just stick with what's in your head and you don't pay attention too much about what's out in the world. And if you do, you're interpreting it in line with what's in your head. And so you're not, you can't take advantage of the positive things around you because that's not how you're feeling. You're running a, a deficit. And so when you're at the point of a clinical depression, you can't just use these you know, strategies and expect to dig yourself out of it. It's, it you right. need usually a little bit of help. Ditto for post-traumatic stress disorder or any kind of serious anxiety disorder. So what I'm talking about works well before you get to that point or as you're coming out of that point. Got it. Okay. So for example, when you're, if you're depressed and you're starting to recover from depression, it means that your brain is sort of not locked into this negative body budget anymore. And so it's starting to pay more attention to what's going on around you in the world. And it's gonna try to predict. And when your brain has trouble predicting, there's an increase in some chemicals that will make you feel jittery and worked up. So actually, if you start to have anxiety symptoms, that is you start to feel jittery after you're recovering from depression, that's actually Probably a good sign because it means that your brain is not locked down anymore into this like really, really deficit kind of situation. So, feeling jittery isn't anxiety, it's feeling jittery. Right. And you can feel jittery because you had too much coffee. You can feel jittery because you're really, your brain is preparing you to do something super hard. And so, you're really pumped, which is determination before my TED talk, before my TED talk, I could feel my heart beating in the tips of my fingers. I mean, I was, and if my brain had constructed, made sense of those sensations as anxiety, that would guide my actions. I would have done something very different than if I constructed determination. And what I found really interesting about it is that's what I was going out to talk about on stage, right? But what I'm there telling myself was, get your butterflies flying in formation. Get your butterflies flying in formation. You know, yeah, sure, you're about to step out in front of a thousand people (laughs) and deliver this speech, which you've memorized, maybe. So there is research to show that you can train people to make determination out of this jittery jumble of feelings instead of making anxiety. And remember how I said, when your brain makes a prediction, it's making a guess at the causes of sensation. The first thing that that guess is about is an action. So if you construct anxiety out of your jittery feelings, that's going to lead you to act in different ways than if you construct determination. And similarly, If, let's say you are starting to run a deficit in your body budget and you wake up in the morning and you feel like you can barely drag yourself out of bed, you can start to construct sadness and weariness out of that feeling. It's easy for most of us because there's enough going on that's going wrong with that we can easily do that. But it's also possible just to construct a feeling of an imbalanced body budget, right? So this morning I woke up and I was exhausted and i didn't tell myself i'm worried about this that or the other thing i didn't tell myself well i'm feeling sad over the loss of this that or the other thing i told myself i probably didn't get enough sleep i probably need to be really careful today today is a day where i'm going to want to eat all the time because i'm tired and i'm going to think i'm going to construct hunger out of that in the hopes that it will kind of perk me up but that's not gonna work, right? What I have to do today is make sure that I get up every hour and take a walk. I have to make sure that I'm hydrated. I have to make sure, maybe I'm gonna drink a little extra tea, so I'm gonna borrow some energy from tomorrow to get me through today. But really what I'm suffering from is a momentary deficit. Maybe not momentary, because we're all surfing the tsunami of stress. (laughs) Right, right. Of this, you know, yeah. Yeah. But the kinds of things that I'll do, Maybe I'll walk into my husband's office and ask for a hug, or maybe I'll say to my daughter, be nice to me today because (laughs) I don't have the spoons for a lot. But basically, the way that you make sense of the sensations in your body and the feelings that come from those has a direct relation to the actions that you take, and that will set you down the path of maintaining a bad feeling and even making it worse, or maybe nudging yourself. In the direction of feeling a little better
1: yeah it seems to me i mean you, you're spot on with everything you just said i totally agree and it, and it helps me understand even more about the whole body budget and how we have to intertwine the mental and physical components of our body i think so many people think of it as silos like the brain controls this and your body controls that and from what i've learned from your work and reading your books the brain is the control center for everything And you hit on something just with what you just said is that self-awareness is being aware that, okay, I am feeling run down. I am maybe a little bit fatigued. I'm tired. Maybe I haven't been eating as well. I haven't been sleeping good. Where I think a lot of people, they just will say, well, I'm not feeling good. I'm sick because my stomach hurts or I'm tired. Maybe I'm getting the flu. Maybe I'm getting a virus, whatever it is. But they're not linking the physical components to the mental components and saying, well, like, maybe I'm just really stressed right now. Burn, burn exactly. my, and exactly. I think people don't even really aren't even really aware sometimes when they're stressed. Because remember, I even I was talking to one of my friends, and after reading your book, I was just fascinated about how much this all made sense about how she responds to stress versus how I respond to stress. If I'm stressed, I'll pace a lot, I'll be like worrying a lot, and I can't sleep. Whereas if she's stressed, she kind of shuts down, and that just proves the point that. Not everyone experiences the exact same responses or emotions when it comes to these feelings. And I think a lot of times people aren't even aware that they're even stressed out. They think they're sick or something else. I mean, have you experienced that in your research?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, my daughter came up with this really great concept, which she calls the emotional flu. The emotional flu means I feel like shit. (laughs) And I want you to know that I feel like shit. Yeah, I want sympathy from you. I want empathy for because I feel bad, but I know I'm not depressed. I know I'm not anxious. I, I know nothing's wrong, really, except that my body budget is kind of, you know, running a deficit at the moment. And, but I'm feeling bad. And I want you to know that. So when she says to me, I, I say, how are you? And she's like, oh, I'm having a moment of the emotional flu. I, I know what that means. That means she needs a hug. And when she was a little girl, we used to call that a, a visit from the Krabby fairy. Like, oh, the <laughs> crabby fairy is visiting you. I mean, in every person's life, if you look a- hard enough, you can find something that's wrong. And you can attach your feelings and your physical state to that thing. But that's weaving together a story that will take your brain down a particular path. And you have a choice. There are other stories with other paths that you can nudge yourself along. And that sounds like a lot of effort. And sometimes it is, but not always. If you practice on a regular basis doing this, then you do get kind of automatic about it. And I think the most important thing to realize is that variation is the norm. Variation is the norm, even for you, which means on some days, in some moments, you will do better than on other moments, in other days. And so you just have to have some compassion for yourself. <laughs> and uh-huh. when you go to sleep, you have to remember tomorrow is another day.
1: Yeah, and it seems like in in simple terms, you hear the words like neuroplasticity and plasticity and rewiring thrown around a lot these days. And I think in the simplest form, it just means trying to make conscious decisions that sometimes are hard to change the way your present is and the way your future will be. And it seems it all comes down to managing things like dopamine, your serotonin, which it seems like they don't control everything in the brain, but I think they play, it seems very many parts, right?
0: Doug, though, serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, opioids are all metabolic regulators. So we refer to them as for other functions, but they evolved to regulate your metabolism. And that is what they are doing. So as serotonin is mucking about with your mood... It is regulating your metabolism. And that is why it has those mood effects. Wow. So I, I, I think the thing to remember is that your mind and your body are not linked in some gauzy, new agey kind of way. They are linked in a very, very real biological way. Whenever you have a change in your feelings or in your thoughts, there's some change going on under the hood. And when it comes to plasticity, I think it's important to remember that your brain is a use it or lose it Mm. kind of organ. So plasticity doesn't mean you get yourself on a pot thinking more flexibly and then you can stop. Then it stops being hard and you can just your brain is finally able to have some choice over the narrative it's telling, the way that it's predicting, the, the meaning that it's making. And then that's it. You just did it. And it's like exercise. If you don't work that muscle, you're going to lose that muscle memory and you're going to eventually the muscle will atrophy. And it's exactly the same as your brain. So the way your brain works. So you're constantly making you know, investments in having a flexible brain in order to have a healthy mind.
1: No, hundred percent accurate, and I'm just going to ask you just one more question in a moment. But first, I loved the analogy used with exercise, and the notion of predictability and how the brain loves predictability. If you do the same workout every day. The reason we stop seeing results is because your body gets used to it because your brain gets used to it. And the reason the interval training is so effective is because it keeps your brain and body guessing, right?
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. That's (laughs) exactly right. That's exactly right.
1: And so one of the the last question I wanted to ask you is I know I heard you do this uh, visualization exercise when you were on Tom's show with the Apple. And I was curious to see if there's any parallel to creating new predictions in the brain for people maybe right now, or people in the future when they're going through a really dark time, if they're able through some sort of visualization, exercise, meditation, to create some sense of prediction in their brain and see something different that they can't see, have some blind faith that life is going to be better than it is right now. Have you seen any kind of research, any kind of exercises with people can do to kind of create some new predictability for people to be able to have, I mean, a more optimistic you know, view of their future?
0: I think that there's not research directly on that topic, Mm -hmm. but there's research that we could bring to bear on that topic. So I think that's what these little exercises of awe do every day. So in order to shift your predictions, one easy way to shift your predictions is just to change the state of your body, get up and move around, or to change your context, to change the situation you're in, get up, go outside. But you can change your situation just by being mindful and attending to things differently in the world around you, right right in front of you. So for example, if a satellite moved and we lost our internet connection or it got really fuzzy, that could make me feel like my goals were blocked and I could get really, I would have, my brain would give me a flush of cortisol and I could turn that into anger in a second, (coughs) less than a second. But I can take a moment, right? And I can say, to myself, I don't have to do it consciously if I practice it enough, I can be grateful and be kind of in awe over the fact that you're somewhere hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away from me and I still can see you. I might not be able to see you well, but I can see you and I can talk to you. That's amazing actually. So yeah, we're all stuck in our houses and we're talking to each other over Zoom, but like we're talking to each other over Zoom. Right. That's amazing. And so that little shift, that little shift gives your nervous system a break. And that gives you enough room so that you don't have to have a big wish that things will be better in the future. You can make things a little better right now. Right. And if you keep Uh, doing that, that takes you on the path to our tomorrow.
1: Right. And you just pretty much summed up everything you've said that change isn't going to be easy. But if your past hasn't been easy either, and your current state isn't easy, then there's really no difference. Either way is going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. And the other thing that I heard you say just there that I think we need to take more into account is this notion of being grateful and perspective and just knowing, being focused on what we do have, because I know there's science out there about gratitude and having perspective on things that you do have in your life yeah. instead of constantly focusing on the things that you don't, correct?
0: Yeah. Yes, there is. This will be the last thing that I'll say and then, yeah. we'll, then we'll wrap up. I'm a really skeptical person. Mm. I'm skeptical about my own work. It took me 25 years before I was even willing to consider writing a book. When I first got a hold of that literature on gratitude, I just didn't believe it. I, I was like, there's no way that this works. I just do not believe it. I do not believe it. But then the thing is the research kept mounting up and mounting up and mounting up and and then I actually started to try it and I thought actually there really is something to this it really there really is something to this and that's the thing right is that any given experiment that you run and you publish has flaws but when all different experiments that have all different flaws keep finding the same thing over and over and over there really, it means that there probably really is something to it and on some days Doug I when things feel like a real struggle. I just remind myself that I'm really lucky to have that struggle. And I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not a Pollyanna. And that's really not my attitude towards the world. But I do think that everybody has a choice. Some people have more choices over their lives than other people due to circumstances, but everybody has a choice about something. No one can control everything. And some people can control more things than others, but everybody can control something. And that is the path to a more fulfilling life.
1: Yeah. Amen to all of that. And I think that's a great place for us to close because your whole notion on all your research and everything is that we do have more control over our emotions than we think. And that you've stated that we can't change the past. We can't change yeah. what's what, what's going on around us, we can change how we move forward through those circumstances to hopefully create our better future. So Dr. Barrett, I really wanted to thank you so much for coming on here. I think the audience is going to get so much out of this. And I encourage people to get both of her books. Her newest book is called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's available on Amazon, as well as her first book, How Emotions Are Made. I encourage people to also check out some of her other interviews that she's done with, like I said, she was on with Lex Fridman and and Tom Bilyeu, where there are more long form interviews where you can learn. She talks a bit more, I think about the science and everything, but I just wanted to really, again, thank you for putting everything that you have learned and researched over the years into such simple terms for myself and for the audience to learn about the brain, about emotions, about stress, about our feelings and how we can move through them to become a better version of ourselves. So I just wanted to show my appreciation for that.
0: Oh, I am very, very, very grateful that the work is helpful to you and and helpful to your listeners. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. So thank you so much.
1: Of course. And for those listening, like I said, go out and check out her books, check out her TED Talks and some of the other interviews she's done. And this is going to be one of those interviews I think you're going to want to go through a few times just because there was a lot of information that we packed into this interview. And not only a lot of information, there's a lot of bullet points and a lot of notes on some actionable things we can all take when we're going through hard times, or maybe some notes on things that you learn different about emotions, or things like affect and feelings, or about the importance of our words, and community, and exercise, and doing things that are hard to kind of change our future, all that stuff is going to be things that you want to pay attention to and then try to implement into your life as you can. And if you enjoyed this episode, one of the things that I ask is that if you just take a screenshot, tag myself, tag Dr. Barrett, and throw in a few of your takeaways or your biggest takeaway, we would love to hear from you and know what you thought of the episode. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and I'll see you next time.